to think about the way that vampire films might help us think about both Hollywood and the United States, it's interesting to think about the relationship between Hollywood and the United States to begin with. And it's um, an interesting tension. On one hand, you've got Hollywood films being quintessentially American, meaning that they kind of represent the U.S. society in the way that it would like to be represented as hardworking, um, as having good family values, etc. But on the other hand, you've also got kind of the business part of it, which is representing Hollywood as universal, as applying to absolutely everybody. So within that tension um, uh, between something that's very particular and something that's very universal, I think that the, the vampire figure is a really interesting way to get into it because it is something that shifts around depending on its context and depending on its purpose. One of the things that I noticed was that the way that um, Hollywood film history is typically told is it's typically told as um, Hollywood is itself a U.S. cinema um, and Hollywood is itself a global model. Um, so it doesn't have those particularities that other national cinemas would have. So when we think about the history of the United States, it's um, often not considered as often um, that race and immigration are essential part to that history. Um, when we think about the history of Hollywood, we often don't think about um, very popular genre films um, like vampire films, which often involve elements of horror, but also comedy, also melodrama, and don't fit within the typical frameworks by which we organize Hollywood film history. So this is a, a very productive moment to look back and take a different view of history and a different view of the United States looking through this figure. The figure of the vampire is interesting because it's completely supernatural. Um, it was completely invented. Because of this, it's interested a lot of philosophers who are interested in these questions about identities that don't completely map onto a nation or a nation state. So if you look at um, philosophers um, who look, go work through post-colonial studies and also through globalization studies, they'll often um, pick up this figure as a way to get into these intricacies, these things that don't usually register on the typical way that we write history. Um, also, people will look at this and look at um, post-human ways of looking at the world so that we don't just privilege humans, but we also think about the environment and we think of non-human animals. So by looking at these vampire films, um, historically what I was able to do is write a different history of Hollywood and a different history of the United States. And one of the, the primary things that I found by doing the research was that Hollywood isn't singular. It's not a monolith. It's not only these films that are produced in California. Um, in fact, Hollywood has often outsourced or offshored its production. In the 1960s, 1970s, um, what were called runaway productions were shot in the Philippines. These films are very much Hollywood films, although they didn't come out of the official studios, so they wouldn't register in those typical histories of Hollywood. Um, and these films often um, dealt with issues that were very sensitive. And I think that's the reason that the vampire is interesting, is because it's a supernatural figure, it's not real. It can't necessarily offend people in the same way that something that would be considered real would. So when you look at these films in the Philippines, they're usually about U.S. imperialism. It's about the legacies of the U.S. having colonized the Philippines and um, given particular conditions for it to um, have its own independence. And it's also about U.S. intervention during its war in Southeast Asia. Um, if you look at contemporary um, Hollywood film practices, it's very seldomly completely shot in the United States, and that's to avoid the unions. So much of the production is offshored to British Columbia in Canada, to Australia, to Czech Republic, to Ireland. So Hollywood has always been very um, transnational in a sense. It's not located just in the United States, even at the level of production. And it's also been um, very multiple. And I think that's the reason that I use the, the plural Hollywoods in the title to describe that it's both the studio films that were produced within that particular infrastructure as well as what are called independent films that might not have been produced in that structure but are using those same resources for distribution, 
um, for production, for whatever it happens to be. And they're also benefiting from that Hollywood structure. I argue in the book that um, vampire films are a trans genre, meaning that they move across particular genre constructions. They're not only horror. Um, they're also a romance, they're melodrama. And if you look historically, that actually maps onto different um, responses in terms of um, how the U.S. and U.S. populations both socially and legally responded to immigrants. So in the 1930s, the, the vampire was seen somewhat as this foreign seducer um, that was going to um, attack uh, um, people in the United States or attack people in the UK as a stand-in for the United States. And that was when immigration law restricted um, immigrations to very particular places and tried to recruit them from other places. Later on, it shifts. Um, you have a shift from the Immigration Act of 1924, which was based on national quotas. So there was a particular number of spaces for people from particular countries. And that was based actually on 1890 census. So it's looking backward to what they thought the United States had been and excluding lots of groups. Um, one of the consequences of that act was that a lot of East European Jews died during the Holocaust. Um, so the um, policy was revisited for its implicit racism. 1965, it changes and it's no longer based on national origin, but it really is based on class and education. So when you look at post-1965 immigration to the United States, they tend to be people with higher levels of education that actually um, were able to integrate into the United States and take benefits from its system in ways that working class immigrants, even back from 1924, did not. And an interesting part about this is that race factors into it. So when you look at early immigration, um, immigrants were often coming from Ireland or from Italy. They were not considered white upon arrival in the United States. Um, and that shows you how race flips around. It's not about skin color. It can be about lots of different things, whether it's class, um, whether it's the company that one keeps. And there's lots of legal and social definitions of race. So these Irish and these Catholic immigrants were considered not white because they were, um, well, Irish and um, Italian because they were Catholic. Um, and therefore, they might be, um, have allegiance to the Catholic Church rather than to the United States. So they had to prove that they could be more white. And they often did this by kind of um, assimilating to the racial structures in the United States, which targeted African Americans as being on the, the lowest end. Um, um, as they moved on and became white, they had more power. And then people stopped thinking about them as not having been white entirely. In 1965, after 1965, it's a very different moment because you've got a higher class. Um, so you've got immigrants coming in from all over the world, including what used to be called third world countries. And because they're highly educated, um, they take advantage of the structures that are in place for them, and they do quite well. And this created a lot of white resentment. So you've got the emergence of this white middle, um, white middle and working class that gets resentful that they are not rising at the same rate as these others. And all of these things factor into films. And because Hollywood is a commercial industry, um, it doesn't want to make films that people don't want to see. So it's not going to address these controversial issues directly. It's going to do them indirectly. And one of the things that I found that was interesting by looking at these vampire films is that it shifts according to who is the group that's being racialized at the moment. Um, what is the response to this racialization? So I'd mentioned the example of classical Hollywood looking at Eastern Europeans as being somehow foreign and not being able to assimilate in the United States. If you look at the 1990s, this is when the so-called war on drugs is happening. Suddenly it becomes Mexico that is the racialized moment, particularly for um, Hollywood, which is located in Southern California. So you have the emergence of television shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where you've got vampires kind of creeping through this space, which is very much a metaphor for um, what they call illegal immigrants hopping over the border. And it's a way to, to bring it out. So in that regard, 
Buffy the Vampire Slayer is extremely conservative, xenophobic, and somewhat racist as compared to other films that emerged in other areas. And it was very much a mo um, part of its moment. And another really interesting part about that particular television show is that it empowered a white woman. And what lots of people have argued is that Buffy has her power um, by being a bully to other people. And that um, is quite different from the way that the figure of the vampire gets picked up by um, what would be called people of color in the United States. So around the same time and even earlier, different filmmakers were taking this character of the vampire and using it to describe their experiences. So you've got other series that emerge at the same time. So for example, there's The Underworld, which is a, a franchise of films, which actually pulls out different aspects of racism, particularly in the United States, like the legacies of slavery, um, without dealing with it implicitly. Um, more recently, there was a film called A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night by um, Anna Lily Anampour, which is a film that's set, it's supposed to be set in Iran, but it really looks like California in a lot of degrees, which is where it was filmed. And it um, features a woman who's a vampire called the girl who wears a chador. And the chador is the, the thing that, the cloak that women in Iran have to wear when they go into official buildings. Um, and she transforms it into a cape and actually turns it into, rather than a garment of potential oppression, into a garment of potential empowerment. So this vampire goes along and actually um, starts um, seeking revenge on misogynist men. And this is the interesting way that it moves across, the figure of the vampire moves across the different genres um, and different media as well. And with the advent of very inexpensive digital media, you see a lot of um, responses to Hollywood films that come out in the form of mashups. Um, so people will take um, bits of footage from different films that they'll rip from DVDs or download from YouTube, mash it together and create their own film. And that's where the contestation comes up. So um, the audiences are not necessarily passive, they actually respond to these pieces. So lots of um, historians and legal scholars have looked at documents about how race is defined in the United States and how that comes to actually play a, um, a role in who gets to be in the United States and who becomes a citizen of the United States. Um, what's interesting when you look at these things, and this can be on census, this can be in legal acts, is that race is defined in lots of different ways. It's constantly shifting according to what it needs to be. So the most popular thing that people think is that race is skin color. Um, and there is an element of that, that's part of it. But it's also um, written um, into law in other ways. Um, one of the more bizarre ways, I think, is blood quantums. So it was described as a way of thinking about ancestry, of where your people are coming from, and that determines um, who you are. So one of the most egregious acts in the United States that actually uses blood quantum is the one drop rule, which determined that if anybody had one drop of blood, metaphorically, that was African American or African, they were considered black, and therefore they were not entitled to the rights that white people got in the United States. Another version of this um, operated in a slightly different way. The United States is a settler colony. It's for the most part run by people um, whose ancestors do not or cannot trace their, their ancestry back to the United States for more than three or four hundred years. Um, so what had happened is with what are now called Native Americans is um, the United States decided that they were entitled to bits of land if they could prove that their blood quantum was a particular percentage of um, Native American or an indigenous nation. Um, and this actually played into policies of the United States. So there were whitening policies, official and unofficial, where Native Americans were either taken from their homes and raised by white families, or they were forced integration, and often um, Native American women being forced to marry or at least have children by white, white males. 
and this reduced their blood quantum of Native American um, bloods, therefore reduced their ability to actually claim land legally, um, which facilitated the whole colonial order. So if you, you look at it, race is very much part of the, the way that the United States actually constituted, constituted itself as a nation. Um, what is difficult is to discuss this stuff because people um, have a lot of difficulty talking about race. A lot of people live it every day as their experience and other people are completely protective from it and tend to get quite upset when it's brought up to them, particularly if they're white and they, they benefit from white privilege. So that's why I thought that looking at a very popular genre, um, looking at a vampire, again, something that's completely supernatural that does not exist outside of folklore and fiction, might be a way that people can actually address these issues and think about them and how they might affect their everyday life. One of the um, most powerful responses that I remember reading about was an interview with an African-American man who grew up in Texas in the south of the United States, a place that's not known um, for being particularly um, sensitive to issues of race. And he often wondered why when he would walk to, out to the shopping mall or whatever he would go to, that white women would clutch their purses when they saw him. And um, he instinctively knew that it was racism, that they were afraid that he was going to steal from them. But he didn't want to just be, um, feel the pain of that. So what he would do is he would imagine himself being a vampire. And because he had saw all these vampires in all these you know, films, television shows, novels, whatever he had read, he always remembered that people feared the vampire because it was powerful. So for him, this was a really interesting way to kind of flip the script of what was actually going on. Rather than being disempowered and being targeted by these white women, by their looks, um, as being a black person who might potentially be a threat, he was able to say they fear him because he's powerful. So he got power from their disempowerment. And this, I think, is really important because um, in the United States now, we've got Black Lives Matter, which is a huge movement which looks at the racial profiling that's institutional through the police constantly. And you get to see what people of color are constantly focusing on. Post 9-11, anybody who looked or sounded Arab or Muslim was targeted. And this included people um, who had absolutely no relationship to any of these things, most likely six, um, most visibly rather six, who were attacked in lots of different ways. Um, as well as um, Puerto Ricans. I had a student who was Puerto Rican who was targeted right after 9-11.